This is uh, Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. It looks like one of those scenes of an old building being purposely dynamited and blown. When we are successful, I'm just a patsy. And we will be. We're ready to make, uh, to come to the microphone, so we'll listen up. A new world order. So my name's Robbie Parker. It might have appeared that way, but from my close-up inspection, uh, there's no evidence of a plane having crashed anywhere near the Pentagon. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September the 11th. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Live from the Media Broadcasting Center. 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 This is uh, Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal, uh, with a special interview with Janet Phelan, who had submitted a special petition to the Human Rights Commission, uh, alleging that Mexico is involved with repeated violations of OAS human rights treaties. Janet, why don't you tell us about your petition, its background, and how it happens that you are now residing other than in the United States? Yes, um, the commission, the uh, petition has been submitted as of July 18th to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights which is an arm of the Organization of American States. Um, it, there are a couple of other uh, regional slash international human rights venues. One, of course, is with the United Nations. The uh, IACHR, Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, uh, focuses its attention on members of the OAS, the Organization of American States. The U.S. is, of course, a member, but interestingly enough, the U.S. has failed to sign and or ratify any human rights treaties that uh, are binding on members of the OAS. So we have uh, a situation again, and we've certainly seen it with U.N. human rights treaties, where the U.S. Uh, simply uh, will not submit to international oversight and jurisdiction, which uh, creates an interesting dilemma for uh, United States citizens who uh, believe that their human rights are being violated by the United States of America. Now, my petition specifically names Mexico. As you may know, J James, I've been uh, residing in Mexico uh, pretty much since 2010. I fled, and I'm using that word, I fled the United States in 2008 following uh, circumstances that were discussed and documented extensively in my book that was published in 2014 entitled Exile. Now, I was in Mexico from 2010 on. Um, my situation in Mexico uh, was, it was not normal. <laughs> I had some things happening, but I could deal with them. Um, and my book does, uh, basically discuss some of these things. However, after my book was published in 2014, my situation in Mexico became increasingly fragile. And, uh, so in 2015, I made an outreach to the 
uh, Ecuadorian embassy in Mexico City um, asking if I could have an appointment to discuss the possibility of political asylum. And uh, what happened as a result of that request uh, is actually part of my petition that was just submitted to the OAS because I was, uh, was backstabbed by, by Ecuador. And, um, That's pretty unfortunate. Yeah, well, you know, the problem here is that the United States is really the most powerful player in the region, and one could say the world. So if the United States uh, wants to basically uh, make some leverage about a situation or wants obedience surrounding a particular person of interest, you know, they can basically lay their cards on the table. And unfortunately, it looks like most countries are just sort of, how do you say it nicely? Um, dropping, cow, cow their tally, cow dropping their drawers and bending over. Okay, this is basically what's going on. So, um, yeah, so, so, so the situation that developed in terms of Ecuador, um, I had put certain things into my communications with Ecuador, and I said, please, under no circumstances do I want this shared with the governments of the United States or Mexico, because Mexico has certain stipulations. Uh, uh, they can deport you if you uh, take certain kinds of actions that could be seen as political or or actually it's part of their constitution. It's article 33 of their constitution. And I wanted to make sure that our, uh, our communications were not shared. So after waiting for a month, I got a very nice letter back uh, from the uh, minister of external relations with the Ecuadorian embassy. Um, and uh, he said, this is also part of my petition to the uh, OAS. Um, and he said, well, you know, we're, we're reviewing your abuse claim. And I, I, wait, I said, wait a minute, I didn't make an abuse claim. I asked for a meeting to discuss the possibility of asylum. Now, that was the first kind of very subtle red flag. So I waited a month, didn't hear anything, called the Ecuadorian embassy spoke with the same political affairs officer I'd spoken with originally, and she said, well, we had to check out what you said, so we're talking to Mexico. And I um, thought at that point it would be a good time to take a vacation. So I, uh, I, I closed up my house and I took off for Central America because I uh, had, a, had some real alarm uh, given this Article 33 and what can happen, I do not want to be deported to the United States, and the reasons why are extensively discussed in exile. Um, exile, you know, for the, for those who are not, you know, aware of, of what I am stating in the book, um, the circumstances that have uh, have it resulted in my endangerment are not circumstances that have to do with my reporting. Uh, this, what happened in the United States was entirely separate from my career as a journalist and my, and my, my true, my best and most important work, I believe, uh, resulted uh, basically from the circumstances that arose in the United States uh, because I was simply not, I was simply clueless and unaware. And what we're talking about was the cover-up
surrounding the murder of my mother, uh, Emily Phelan. So this is the initiating situation, and this is the focus of my book. So, um, Would you be at liberty to elaborate on the circumstances of the death of your mother? Um, uh, my, a little bit. I, 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 do, I think it's important um, to discuss a little bit. I, I don't want to focus you know, too much uh, because things that happened got uh, extremely complicated and, and convoluted. And um, basically, my family, my mother and I, uh, were the subject of an intelligence operation. And uh, the intelligence officer who, who was micromanaging the situation is named in the book um, there are uh, there are self-incriminating documents bearing his signature, which are included in the uh, in the appendix section of the book. What what what, and, what was the nature of the intel op, uh, Janet? Well, it was apparently to kill her, and very likely to kill me too. Um, she 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 she. Uh, my mother at the, at the machinations of this um, spy who never disclosed to me that he was a spy. He approached me romantically, and I was lured into a romantic relationship with him. I lived with him for a while, um, uh, not knowing uh, what his true profession was um, and, you know, just simply unaware of, of the gravity of the situation. So Janet, my mother, your mother, your mother was a doctor. I take it that was a PhD rather than an MD. She was, yes, she had a PhD, um, her master's from, uh, Cornell university, her PhD in clinical psychology from Syracuse university. And she had been a clinical psychologist in private practice and also, um, had spent, uh, 20 plus years working as a supervisor at the Long Beach Health Department. Um, she was in their alcohol and drug abuse section. In, in, so, Calif in California. Yeah, in California. Had, had she obtained information through her clients at the? No, no. This was not about information, and this is this is where the book gets gets sort of deep, and I think scary. Uh, this was not about information. My mother was not killed for information. Um, what's happening to me now, I believe, uh, could be considered, uh, you know, more about information because I, what, I, what happened was, you know, having been a witness to what happened to my mother and the involvement with U.S. officials all the way up the food chain. Um, as I started to say, uh, with the machinations of this fellow named Jack Smith residing in West Hollywood, um, wonderful name, Jack Smith, almost untraceable, you know. Um, I mean, John Doe, Jack Smith. Uh, anyway, this is the name he goes by. This is not his original name. Uh, it's a name he assumed it looks like in the early 1990s. Anyway, all of which I found out much too late. Um, at, under his machinations, my mother was put under an adult guardianship um, and we do know, um, I believe we discussed this on your show, and um, certainly uh, the, 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 the abuses going on to elderly and disabled people 
under adult guardianships are now finally hitting the mainstream media. When, when, did, your, when did your mother die? Uh, my mother died in 2004. So, um, and, and, and if I may ask, the, ca the cause of death? I don't know. I mean, my mother was virtually kidnapped. Um, there was an attempt on my mother's life um, while I was still living with Jack Smith that took place in uh, 2002. My mother was put under the adult guardianship. Um, my mother was not incompetent. Um, my mother was a very bright woman who was getting older, but uh, had only stopped working, I think, a year and a half before all this started. Did, did, did um, she have substantial wealth or personal yes, resources? Yes, yes. Um, it, it was not, you know, over the top, but there was some money. Um, my father, James Phelan, had been an investigative reporter and also the author of three books, one of which was an international bestseller. And what, what were they on, Janet? Um, my father's first book, which was the big book that um, actually uh, was ended up as a cover story in Time magazine, um, was entitled Howard Hughes, The Hidden Years. And it was uh, written right after Hughes died. And um, there was a lot of interest in Howard Hughes back then. So anyway, it was a cover story. Oh, it was uh, about Howard Hughes. Yeah, the Howard Hughes. Years, the about aspects years. of Howard Hughes' life that are heretofore not revealed to the public. Yes, um, yes. My, my father had been a Hughes watcher for um, a number of years. Um, my father wrote for the Saturday Evening Post between, I think, 1963 and 69 when the Post closed. And my father had uh, written a number of articles on Howard Hughes. Uh, some of them, I think, I know some were published in Playboy, um, I think he may have done some things for the Post on Hughes, I'm not sure, but he had, he had certainly penned a number of articles. So when Hughes uh, died, um, three individuals who had been in what they called the Mormon Mafia, uh, the Mormons who were the personal attendants to Howard Hughes, um, contacted my father saying, you know, we want to write a book, we want you to write it, and you, know, you can interview us and so forth. So um, that's how the book came about. Now, my father now, now said, he had two other books. Were they also on Howard Hughes? I was just going to say, yeah. The, the second book was entitled Scandals, Scamps, and Scoundrels, a case book of an investigative reporter. Scandals, scams, and... Scandals, scamps, scamps, and scoundrels. And scoundrels, okay. Case book of an investigative reporter. And this second book uh, went into some of the more interesting and bizarre and some of actually kind of important stories that my father had covered. Um, uh, there's one chapter, I believe, I believe it's called Rehearsal for Watergate. Um, anyway, uh, when Richard Nixon was running for the California governor's seat against Pat Brown, yes. um, my father broke a story in the uh, old reporter magazine having to do with what was called then the Nixon-Hughes loan. And Howard Hughes had loaned a great deal of money to Richard Nixon's brother, which was seen as being quite inappropriate Donald. for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And uh, this story was, was credited by 
Pat Brown with costing the California governor's seat to um, to Richard Nixon and uh, turning the tide of the election. So that was one of the stories uh, that was reported in the book. And the third book was which actually was published I think, the month after my father passed away was entitled The Money. And it was also about Howard Hughes. And it was about what happened to the Hughes fortune after um, Howard Hughes expired because there were a lot of very strange and peculiar things that happened to all that money. Uh, none of which I have on the top of my head, unfortunately, right now. But uh, well, so the, the, the election that was affected by his report of the Howard Hughes loan to Nixon's brother, Donald, right. led to Nixon's defeat. Uh, was, yeah. he, was he running for governor at the time? Yeah, he was running for governor against, against Pat, Pat Brown. Brown. And this, this yeah. cost him the yeah. election. Yeah, that's what Brown believed. And no, that growing was 19, up, Yeah, that was in 1962. I was a little girl at the time. Sorry, what? That was 1962, yeah. Yeah, I was a little girl, and um, growing up, um, there would be phone calls, you know, coming in, and I'd pick up the phone, it would be, you know, Governor Brown on the phone for Jim Phelan, so um, there was continuing contact, and um, one of the things I do remember very clearly is that uh, Brown wanted to show his gratitude to my father, because he truly believed that this was the clincher uh, story, and and my father, you know, didn't want any, he didn't want anything really from a politician. So well, what, what he said. Yeah. Was your father subjected to threats and so forth? Could you. So let me finish this story first. So Please do. Yeah. It, does show, it does show something about my father's character. Um, my father had a friend named Armin Jewell, who my father thought was a very ethical lawyer and a really good guy. And when Brown pressed him and said, well, what can I do for you? He said, well. You know, I think my friend Darman Jewell would make a good judge. Could you appoint him to the bench? And um, he did. So that was the payback, uh, you know, for for my dad's the article. You know, my father didn't want to be indebted to a politician. He didn't want anything from a politician. And uh, since Brown was pressing the matter, he said, yeah, Armand would make a great judge. And actually, Armand Jewell was for a while the presiding judge of, of Los Angeles County. So... Um, anyway, so that was, yeah, threats. Well, uh, things got very strange, uh, for a period of time, uh, following my father's, uh, work on the Kennedy assassination. Um, tell me about, tell me, tell me about that. Okay. Did he, do a uh, book? Sure. Did he do a book on JFK too? No, he didn't. He just the three books that, that I mentioned. Um, when my father was writing for the Saturday, Saturday evening post, um, was during the period that Jim Garrison uh, announced that he had solved the mystery of the JFK assassination and was uh, was bringing to trial an individual named Clay Shaw and uh, down in in New Orleans and uh, so the Post uh, sent my dad down there and they sent him down there because he had done a prior article for the Saturday Evening Post on. Uh, on Jim Garrison when Garrison was first uh, ended up as the district attorney down there because he was a very colorful person and and uh, so the article 
was entitled The Vice Man Cometh. And it was just sort of, you know, a, a, a piece about this kind of jolly green giant, I think they called him, you know, Jim, Jim Garrison. So, so the Post sent uh, Dad down to New Orleans when the media feeding frenzy began. And, um, and my father's uh, subsequent article on, uh, on what was transpiring in, uh, in New Orleans was the cover story in the Saturday Evening Post. Essentially, um, this is what transpired. Um, Garrison recognized my dad, and, and, and they, you know, say, called him over, and they chatted for a bit. He said, look, he said, I want to show you what, what I've really got on this case. And he said, let's uh, fly out to Vegas, and, and we'll meet up there, and, and I'll give you my file. And, and that's, um, so they went out separately, but they met up, and um, in the file was uh, the uh, some documentation concerning the initial interview that Garrison had done with Perry Russo, in which Russo didn't know anything about any Clay Shaw or any Clem Bertrand or any conspiracy. And then there was also the transcripts of the, uh, the uh, shall we say, interview when uh, Perry Russo was drugged by a doctor and the doctor then basically led him through his testimony concerning Clay Shaw and Clem Bertrand. So um, my father and the jury, I guess, agreed, believed that this was not appropriate uh, uh, district attorney investigative techniques. And so my, this, my father did report this in the Saturday Evening Post. And also there's a chapter in my father's uh, second book, Scandals, Scamps, and Scoundrels. There's also a chapter about, um, you know, what this whole business down there in New Orleans. So, what, what, what did your father conclude about the assassination? Well, my father's viewpoint about this changed over the years. I think when it first happened, my father thought that, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was a bad guy. But then the Warren Commission report came out. And I remember, um, you know, my father just basically locked himself in his room for, it seemed like weeks, you know, going over it. And he got very, very uncomfortable uh, with with the report. He, he began to revise his original perceptions about, you know, who did the, the crime. But um, he didn't write anything about that. You know, his focus and his reporting uh, on on the whole business was really confined to uh, what happened in New Orleans. There's a very interesting book that was subsequently published. It was published in 1999 um, uh, by a woman named Patricia Lambert. Uh, Lambert had been David Lifton's investigator for best evidence. I'm sure you know that book um, on you know, the conspiracy uh, to kill JFK. And Lambert, uh, in 1999, published a book entitled False Witness, which goes into great detail about what happened in, uh, in New Orleans uh, under, under Garrison's investigation. 
And one of the things, one of the, the, the things that sort of shocked me that was um, disclosed in the book was that Garrison had been an FBI agent. And this is not something that is seems to be generally known uh, among, uh, um, you know, JFK conspiracy researchers. So anyway, well, I thought... That, this was something your, your dad established, that, that Garrison... No, this had, no, 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 this is what Lambert, this is what Lambert established. Where is that published or presented offhand, do you, do you know? Well, the book is entitled False Witness. I mean, you can certainly false, find it on False Amazon. Witness, okay. You can find it on Amazon, right? Sure. So. Sure. Well, uh, so we... What, so what anyway, caused your... What, what that's, caused kind of, that's kind of a family background, and, and I kind of want to... Can we talk a little more about the IACHR edition? It's, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to... Got some background because I mean your petition is predicated on the presumptive murder of your mother, and that leads to questions about why she would have been murdered. And yeah. you, 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 I felt perhaps talking about your father would shed some light on that. Do you have very specific reasons why you believe she was murdered? Well, you know. I, I I am making statements in the petition specifically about this. Um, I can actually, we're not doing a screen share now, so I can actually pull up the petition and, and, and read from it directly. Um, and basically uh, what I'm stating is that is that the U.S. has adopted a um, a the, the U.S. is essentially uh, no longer, uh, a, if it ever was, a country that um, that honors uh, equal protection under the law for all people. And we can see very clearly uh, in a number of different sort of ways where certain people aren't getting fully vested rights. Um, we're seeing, well, I mentioned adult guardianships. In fact, these guardianships, which impact the elderly and disabled, are, um, are rife with incredible uh, legal abuses. Uh, the, the very concept that, that there's certain groups of people who will have, no, um, will have no constitutional and civil rights because a judge labels them incompetent, you know, this is, this in itself raises uh, some problems and questions, but uh, what we're seeing is where people who are not incompetent are being put under guardianship. Um, and we're also seeing that the courts are accommodating uh, massive violations of due process uh, in order to, um, to put the people under guardianship. And very often, people under guardianship are having their estates looted by the guardians um, they are being uh, uh, sequestered uh, and um, separated from the oversight of family and friends, and very and, often. And I take it your mother, often, your mother was placed under guardianship, which required a judicial procedure. Did you did you attend or participate in the hearings on her, this determination? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And and there were a, a lot of um, there are a lot of documents uh, in. Um, in my book, Exile, that 
that conclusively show that the judicial misconduct uh, was was geared towards uh, terminating her life. Now, those are very strong statements. Um, there are also a couple of documents included as evidence in my IACHR human rights petition uh, that uh, uh, two documents, uh, one from the United States Department of Justice and one, uh, actually two documents from uh, the Riverside County Superior Court uh, presiding Judge Harold Topp, uh, both of which are um, extremely suspect uh, and would go towards um, basically suggesting a, a, a cover-up having to do with my mother's murder. The um, So I attach these two, even though my human rights petition is addressing Mexico, um, I included these two documents, three documents, I'm sorry, because there were two from Riverside, uh, that are basically showing uh, complete denial of due process in, um, in uh, you know, both at the federal level and also at the county superior court level. Um, so uh, my book has more documents that will show uh, judicial misconduct, which would be could be seen by anyone as, who, who, who intending, made as intending to ensure her, her demise. Who, who, was, uh, who was made your mother's custodian? Um, her guardian uh, was a woman named Melody Scott. Tell us about Melody. Uh, Melody Scott, uh, well, if you Google Melody Scott, um, you'll find uh, reports uh, from the Los Angeles Times, uh, CBS News, and also from yours truly, uh, which are uh, very concerned as to how she is actually um, dispensing of her ward's properties as well as her ward's lives. Now, recently, Melody Scott um, faced a challenge to her professional fiduciary license in um in administrative office hearings in California. And uh, she uh, had her license revoked as of June 1st. Now this is where it gets interesting because having been on Melody Scott's trail, I'm not gonna use the other word, for a number of years now, um, I have also uh, garnered uh, documents from other individuals who are alleging that Melody Scott terminated the lives of family members, their family members, who are under guardianship. And so I have, I have these reports that went into the state of California, that went into the Department of Justice, and went into the Professional Fiduciaries Bureau. Now, not one of these complaints was ever honored. They were all dismissed uh, without any mention whatsoever. However, Melody Scott, was uh, found liable uh, this past year by the Office of, of Administrative Hearings for not reading a trust uh, of someone that she was to be a trustee over. Now, when you look at the issue of withholding medical care from uh, ill wards, for example, uh, an individual named uh, Elizabeth Fairbanks, who was under a guardianship with Melody Scott, uh, fell, fell ill with pneumonia 
and in direct, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, opposition to, to the desires of the family, plus given the fact that there was no do, do not resuscitate order on file, Melody Scott unilaterally decided that it was time for Elizabeth Fairbanks to get off the planet. And she withheld any medical treatment for pneumonia. No antibiotics, no, no breathing assistance, nothing. Instead, she ordered Elizabeth Fairbanks to be applied with morphine, morphine which also retards, we understand, respiration. And Elizabeth Fairbanks succumbed to a treatable illness. Now, just for my clarification, this Melody Scott is not the same as the actress Melody Scott. No, 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 Melody, and it's Melody Zink Scott, not the same, right? And it's M-E-L-O-D-I-E. So, um, so these are the kinds of reports. And then there was another individual, a young boy who'd had a hospital error, um, terrible thing happened and was deprived of oxygen for a while during some procedure and, and so he had a um, five million dollar award uh, after a, a lawsuit by his parents. Um, Melody Scott took control over Stevie Price and um, if you want to find out what she did to Stevie Price you can certainly google Melody Scott and Stevie Price. So you know we uh, Stevie Price has also um, is now uh, no longer uh, alive and was the, the is family. Melody Scott some sort of professional custodian? I mean, does yes, she have? Is she the custodian of multiple estates? Multiple. This is this was her. This was her profession. She had a business, uh, a guardianship business entitled uh, Care Incorporated in Redlands, California, and uh, this was her business. And along with. Um, the allegations of inappropriate end-of-life decisions. Um, there's also been massive al- allegations, uh, which appear to have been very well documented by the complainants, that she has essentially disappeared a lot of the money that uh, she was uh, also pledged to oversee as her position as a guardian. Now, I want to stress again that the Office of Administrative Hearings did not hear one single iota of evidence uh, concerning Melody Scott's misconduct in her dispensations of people's lives or their money. She was brought uh, to the Office of Administrative Hearings under a charge that she failed to read a, 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 a trust before she took over the estate. Now, what happened to all these uh, reports of, um, of shall we say, uh, allegations of theft and murder. We can use it. We can use those words when we say allegations. Okay, what happened to them? Well, um, the Department of Justice, which prosecuted Melody Scott's license, uh, simply uh, did not choose to prosecute her on what could be considered crimes. Now, I have had. Uh, repeated uh, contacts with the Department of Justice. I have requested uh, of both that agency and also the Professional Fiduciaries Bureau uh, the numbers of complaints concerning Melody Scott. I have in my files uh, several complaints that were 
uh, sent by various individuals, but I wanted to know how many they really got. And they are invoking uh, the investigative file exemption in the California Public Records Act to not even release no details. I, I am, I'm requesting no details about the contents of the report. I just want to know how many. They won't tell you. They won't even tell you. So Melody Scott, as of June 1st, no longer has a professional fiduciary's license in California and therefore cannot uh, legally uh, sit on these cases as a guardian, a trustee. However, um, very recently I checked the San Bernardino County website because she is operating in San Bernardino County. Um, most of her cases are overseen by a judge there, although she has been known to take cases in LA and Riverside and elsewhere. And she's still got 10 active cases. So, um, which is of course against the law. So um, this is, um, I, I say, I'd say this is all evidence of some clout. So that's who Melody Scott is. Hmm. Uh, do you believe your writings about this have made an impact on uh, any of the cases that have come before the courts? I do. Uh, I do think so. Um, for example, um, the prior probate uh, judge who was hearing most of the cases in San Bernardino was a gentleman named uh, James Michael Welch. And uh, I... Uh, started to investigate uh, uh, some of his financial transactions. Um, when when public officials begin to violate the law, when judges begin to violate uh, people's rights who appear before them, and it was it was uh, Judge James Michael Welch who sat over the Elizabeth Fairbanks case, which I discussed a moment ago. Uh, the woman who didn't get any antibiotics for her pneumonia and died as a result. Um, you know, he was basically the point man to sit over most of Melody Scott's cases. So um, using um, public records, I have sort of de devised a way to uh, research financial transactions of public officials. Now, I, I must state uh, that what I have found uh, in terms of um, public officials uh, using the grantor-grantee index as the main search uh, mechanism. What I found is suggestive only. However, the reactions that I've gotten from judges when confronted with what I find on the grantor-grantee indexes is not indicative. It is, it is simply a sheer terror. Now, I researched James Michael Welch, and uh, among a number of other judges, uh, in Riverside and also in um, in San Bernardino County, and as a result, I uh, wrote an article for the San Bernardino County Sentinel, which was published in uh, 2009. Um, I believe it was 2009, uh, entitled. Uh, well, you can find it online if you if you Google how to bribe a judge, Janet Phelan. Um, you can find the article online. That was not the the headline. We gave it initially in the San Bernardino County Sentinel because it was a little too a little too in your face. I think the initial headline was something like judges involved in multiple advances or something. But basically this is this is the nut of it, okay? If you have a judge and he's taken out a loan on his property, you know, every couple of years, let's say he's taken out a 
$200,000, year loan, paying it back in no time flat, taking out another one, paying it back, taking out another one. You got to start asking some questions. Now, the question one has to ask at the core is who's paying back the loans? Because if you're going to bribe a public official, you're going to want to do it in a way in which there is some level of obscurity, okay? You don't want, for example, when Brian Mulroney, who was the Prime Minister of Canada, was caught red-handed receiving a big manila envelope stuffed full of cash, that was an embarrassing moment. And that made all kinds of headlines across Canada and elsewhere. So you want to bribe someone, you want to do it kind of like under the cover of darkness. And home loans are a wonderful way to do this. Um, so basically, this is how it works. Judge X takes out a loan and Mr. Y pays it back. So when, this is a roundabout way of, ask, of answering your question, but I did research uh, Judge Welch's loans. And very shortly after, Judge Welch resigned the bench. Now, the, 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 the rumor I heard was that the bench just got too hot for him. So um, that, was, uh, that was one instance where I felt that, you know, some of this research came to fruition. There was another case uh, involving a, um, a disabled beneficiary of a special needs trust. We'll just call her Pam. Um, and she was in a court in Northern California. And we started looking into some details having to do with that judge. That judge had issued an arrest warrant for Pam. Um, Pam had been able to, I guess, get the trust terminated and get the money, which was being absolutely spent so liberally by the, the trustee that it was just diminishing the amounts of the money, you know, horrifically. And she was able to get this all terminated and get the money back. And suddenly the trustee turned around and demanded $30,000. And when Pam wouldn't pay it, she went to court and got an arrest warrant for Pam. So uh, after researching Pam's judge, the judge decided um, that she wasn't she was going to rescind the arrest warrant. And the trustee decided that it wasn't going to be worth her while either uh, to pursue the thirty thousand dollars. So, you know, this kind of research has uh, has had some effect. I wish it would have more effect. I wish what I wish is that we could launch uh, some sort of federal lawsuit because my research indicates that between 60 and 70% of the judges I have looked at have, uh, have alarming amounts of activity surrounding their home loans. Now, once again, the grantor-grantee indexes, which is where I do this research, will not tell you who pays back the loan. They will only show you the amount of activity. So if you have a judge... Uh, that's running millions of dollars through his house every few years. You got to ask, what's going on? That's that. That's fascinating, uh, Janet. In your in your petition in your press release, you claim the Mexican authorities attempted to detain, deport, or kill you. What yeah. what led what led you to that conclusion? Um, there are documents uh, provided the commission uh, that show a massive misconduct uh, by, uh, by um, Mexican officials 
uh, surrounding my attempts to uh, to um, basically uh, request what are normal legal protections. Um, I'm going to give one, one instance here, and then I'm going to move on to the more kind of serious allegations here. Um, for example, uh, like I mentioned, I've been in Mexico since 2010, and on on two occasions. Uh, after I moved to Chiapas and I moved there in 2013, um, this was right around the time of my book being published, uh, which seemed to exa- exacerbate my situation so much more. Um, on two occasions, I was on a, a bus, a lengthy bus ride. One was coming back from Yucatan and the other was coming back from Tapachula, which is six or seven hours away uh, by bus from where I was living in Chiapas. And on both occasions, I was uh, federales, um, boarded the bus. They yanked me and only me off the bus, um, surrounded me with their guns uh, drawn and threatened me with arrest. Now, um, there are details given uh, uh, one of these uh, one of these uh, uh, completely illegal uh, threats. took place, um, they, they, they were going through my, my backpack, which I had with me on, my, on, my, on, on the bus, and they found that I had vitamins. Like I, I'm, a, I'm big on vitamins, and I'm big on herbs and stuff like that, and I had vitamins. And they went, wow, vitamin C. They said, do you have a prescription for this in Spanish? You're kidding me. Said, you got a prescription for this? I you said, needed a prescription for vitamin C? I said, you, you know, in Mexico, you don't need a prescription for almost anything. And you certainly don't need it for vitamin C. And I looked at the nice officer. I said, I'm sorry. You know, I don't need a prescription for vitamin C. I don't need a prescription for anything I have. You are free to go through my backpack. There is nothing that should, you know, uh, alarm your your sensibilities or your, you know, or your knowledge of the law here. He said, but you've got vitamins. I said, right, and no prescription. Just so, so this was just an, a blatant act of intimidation? Yeah, so based on that, he yanked me off the bus, and then um, this was the middle of the night because it was an overnight bus ride from Yucatan. It was about 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, There were about four or five of them that surrounded me with their guns, and they said, well, we can't arrest her on this. What can we arrest her on? They said, oh, let's see how much money she has on her. And then they ordered me. Are you kidding me? Oh, we have so many witnesses to this, okay? They, They said, take your money out of your pockets. Now, I had on a travel vest, um, and I did have some money on me, but I certainly wasn't over the legal limit, which, and there is actually a legal limit. Um, so anyway, so I, 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 I'm saying, wait a second. I said, I don't believe that you have, and I was taping this, okay? Um, I said, I don't believe that you have the, the legal authority to demand me to do this. I said, I think the only person who can do this is when I'm crossing over a border, you know, and they want to make sure you don't have that $10,000 or whatever it is that the limit is. I said, I don't believe you have any right. And they said, you're going to do this or you're coming with us. So, uh, you know, so, okay. So I pull my money out of my pockets. Right. And then they go, Oh, she's got money. I go, yeah. I said, not against the law again. So then the commandante came up. And the commandante was, you know, the, 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 the jefe, the, the, the big cheese here. And he's looking at my money. And then it starts to rain. So I'm stuffing the money back in my pocket so it doesn't all suddenly get, you know, washed away. And he said to me in Spanish, you know, senorita. 
He says, I, I, I am very concerned about your security here in Mexico. And that was my opening. And I grabbed my backpack and I spat at him. I mean, I didn't spit, but I, I spat out. I said, the only challenge to my security here in Mexico, sir, has been you. And I grabbed my backpack. I took a chance. I got back on the bus and the bus took off. So um, that was the second such incident. And at that point, you know, I decided enough was enough. So I spoke to, when I got back to, to Chiapas, I spoke to some individuals who were involved in human rights. And they said, you have to report this to uh, the, the, the human rights office in the government. And silly me, uh, I, I took their advice. So in San Cristobal de las Casas, there is a, um, a, a satellite office of the National Federal Human Rights Agency. And I trotted myself in there with a, a, a translator. Um, I had written out my complaint uh, first, um, both in English and Spanish, but I wanted a translator to make sure. My Spanish is pretty good, but I didn't want to make any mistakes. And I didn't want to be misunderstood. So my translator basically spoke in English and my translator uh, spoke with the attorney there. And she was very nice. And, and she took the complaint and she explained to me that within a week, I believe it was a week, uh, I would be contacted by a, a Mexico City federal human rights attorney that this was considered to be, you know, a, a harassment and, and a threat to a journalist and that this was not to be tolerated and all this nice stuff. So I waited and waited and waited and waited and waited, waited. didn't hear anything. So I went, back, I, I went back to the satellite office and uh, to the, the very same nice, young, uh, earnest attorney who had taken my complaint initially and she called the police on me. And she so, called the police on you. She called the police on me. Now, um, I do believe that she did not understand my level of capacity in Spanish because uh, when she saw me, she darted out of her office and saw me and she went in and grabbed her, her cell phone because she did have someone in her office. And she started you know, running through the lobby and, and talking on her cell phone and I understood every word she was saying. And, uh, and she certainly was uh, reporting uh, making a law enforcement call. So when the person left her office, and I'm sitting right, I'm thinking, I'm protected here. I'm sitting right under the video camera. I'm sitting there as peacefully as possible, and nobody can possibly say that I, you know, behaved in any way that would necessitate, necessitate a police call. But just to make sure, I turned on my pocket recorder. So video, audio, everything, I'm thinking I'm covered. So a couple minutes later, the person left her office and she invited me in and she was acting very strangely. She was, you know, I said, I, I need the contact information for the Mexico City uh, human rights lawyer because she didn't contact me. And, and the attorney in San Cristobal starts writing it out 20 times. She's writing it over and she says, well, we just have to make sure that you, you know, she's talking in Spanish. We have to make sure that you have this. And she's writing it. This is stalling. I don't need her to write it 20 times. And then she picks up the phone and calls again right in front of me. Okay. And this time she says, look, I told you she's here. Come get her. 
I'm thinking, oh, this is great. So I said, you know, I got to go. And I left. So, um, so uh, you know, here I am. Uh, I've got this complaint in to the, the federal office that is not being attended to appropriately. You know, I've got the, the, the attorney in San Cristobal, you know, doing very uh, suspect things. And um, so I, uh, I, I got myself over. There's a non-government human rights office that is, you know, entirely an NGO that deals a lot uh, with indigenous issues as well as some others. People may know that Chiapas was the uh, site of the Zapatista uprising in the 90s. A lot of people got killed. There are continuing uh, issues going on between police and indigenous and other groups. It's a very... It's a political hot zone. Yeah. So, hey, let me ask a, a more specific question about uh, your allegation of attempted chemical assassination. Could you elaborate upon that? Okay, you don't want to hear how, well, this. This whole story resolved very nicely about the, but anyway, it's all in my petition. Oh well, I'm, about, I mean, I'm glad. Well, yeah, please do fit. That's fine. We'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, in the press release, uh, which I sent out, which you got, um, I am alleging uh, that Mexican officials attempted to detain, deport, or kill me. And then I also discuss uh, having uh, having uh, encountered attempts at chemical assassination, and this is uh, discussed more thoroughly uh, in my petition. And what I am alleging is that 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 uh, my home has been repeatedly entered without my authorization or consent in my absence, and that uh, chemical assassination weapons, specifically heart attack weapons, were being uh, rather liberally uh, deposited on bedding, clothes, and personal use items. And... Um, this, these are my allegations. Do you believe this is related to your exposés about judges receiving bribes through loans? Um, I think that based on what happened in California to my mother, that my life took a very uh, strange and, and remarkable turn and that things started to happen to me that simply were not, cannot be explained as another, you know, another guardianship gone bad. I know about a lot of guardianship victims, and I don't know of any of them other than myself that were attacked by the police with lethal intent. This is something else that was discussed in my book and, and, and formed, you know, the core of my decision to leave the U.S. Was your, so, was your mother subjected to an autopsy? Um, I wasn't even told my mother had died until weeks after she was buried. I was attempting, I was attempting to, you know, call, call the guardian, call, you know, what's happened to where is my mother? What's happened to my mother? A month later, I'm told, oh, she died a month ago. So um, that's pretty you know, strange, all by itself, Janet. Well, I have, I have the documentation. I have the proof of that. Do you have a death? Do you have a death certificate or a cause of death? Um, stipulated, whether truly or falsely. I, I do not. I do not have one. Um, but I do have, you know, no, I don't so have So your one. inference is about... What I have, what I have was, was with the first attempt on my mother's life under guardianship, which happened in 2002, 
I have documents which conclusively show both police and judicial cover-ups. Janet, could you give us a a couple of minutes summary about your petition and why you hope that it's acted upon favorably by the organization of American states? Well, um, I believe at this point in time, I've left Mexico, by the way, I'm I'm talking to you from the Southern Cone um, in South America. Um, The situation in Mexico became, it was just overwhelming, too much to handle. You know, you come home and there's, you can't lie down in the bed (laughs) because the bedding has been saturated. I mean, you can't, you know, you can't eat from the refrigerator because everything's been contaminated. It it, it was, it was simply beyond belief. Um, So, you know, what I'm seeing happen, um, and I'm seeing this very clearly, is that individuals who are trying to protect other individuals are getting uh, slammed pretty badly. This is happening, well, it's happening very clearly in guardianship court. We have individuals like Patty Reed, like uh, Barbara Stone, like Carrie Andrew Crittenden, who are only trying to uh, assert the rights of others who are disabled and uh, under guardianship, and these people are being jailed. And um, we're seeing that we're attorneys who are trying to assert the rights of, of people under guardianship are being uh, stripped of their license to practice law. And, you know, we have other indications, of course, that that there are groups of people who are simply not being given their fully vested civil rights. You know, when, when the police, just, when the police murder someone, um, they are, they are, there are over a thousand murders every year. I'm sorry, kill killings. I should say killings by police officers, and almost never are these police officers ever brought to trial or held culpable. And so, you know, what we're seeing is is really the emergence of of a form of tyranny, where certain kinds of people, certain people, just don't have. Uh, the same rights as, let's say, Diane Feinstein or Jeb Bush. So, um, you know, what I'm hoping with my petition, because my situation is rather extreme. I mean, when they start sending police, you know, in, in, in Long Beach, California to, uh, you know, to kill you, which is discussed in my book, and the police officers are named, um, when you have to flee the country, when you find that you're just, you know, you end up in in Mexico and all you're doing is writing articles and doing radio and doing the best you can to try to inform other people of the nature of the crisis and and you incur this level of attention, I think, you know, I think we're in deep trouble. And I think my situation is only one, you know, small aspect of the deep trouble that, that we as American citizens are in now. And what I am hoping is that the petition will be uh, admitted, that it will be thoroughly investigated, and that um, my situation will will reach some level of appropriate resolution where I can continue to live my life without being uh, basically uh, attacked in the way I've been attacked. And what I'm hoping is that that my situation will help uh, others 
to, you know, to possibly also engage the IACHR and will also shed more light on the kinds of abuses that the American government is uh, inflicting on its own people at home and abroad. Well, Janet, I thank you so much for taking the time to share with me your experiences and your present situation. Good luck with your petition. This is Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal, thanking my special guest Janet Phelan for being here and all of you for watching. Moonrock Books. We're a group of scholars, experts, and authors who feel the world really needs saving and that resisting the American empire is the right thing to do. People are starved for truth. They are given lies. They subsist on lies, but it's not really living. People are not watching TV news. They're ceasing to read newspapers, too, because they know by now they will not find it there. The biggest battle being fought anywhere is with information. If the people can receive the truth, they will do the right thing. We are publishing the truth about Sandy Hook, about the Boston bombing, about the moon landings, about the Holocaust, and much, much more. The truth. It falls upon us to fight the empire and save the world. Join us, Moonrock Books.